the incomparable. Number 179, January 2014. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and it's time for us to convene another edition of our book club. And we haven't read books in a little while. Well, we've been reading books, but we haven't met and convened. There's been no convention of book readers on the podcast in a little while to talk about specific books. We did our book draft uh, where we did our winter, you know, picked a bazillion books for you to read that you're probably still trying to get through but we're back to talk about two books in specific we are gonna have some spoilers we'll fire off the spoiler horn we'll give you a warning about when to uh skip ahead if you want to talk about one of the books and not the other book the two books that we read because it's been so long i wanted us to read two different books and these are books that i i've actually been i've had recommended to me for a while now by our panelists and i read them and so i thought hey now that i've read them i should get something out of this like a podcast so here we are and Scott McNulty joins us, of course, as always, because he reads everything. Hi, Scott. Hello, Jason. It's good to be here. Reading books. Reading books for once. Not like that Dungeons & Dragons with Roger your brain. That's true. So the, uh, if I remember correctly, this is the this the podcast where we all individually silently read books. And all you hear is the turning of pages, yes. Okay, good. Appreciative chuckle. <laughs> yeah. And the voice you heard is Monty Ashley, who also joins us. Hello, Monty. Hello. Hi. Good to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be back. And you have read uh, you have read both the books, correct? I have read each of the two books. Wow, amazing! I hope now Dan Morin is next. Dan Morin is here. Sometimes Dan doesn't finish the books we're reading. Dan, have you read and finished both of these books? Book? What is what is book? What is what is book? I yeah, I read some books. I it's possibly they were they might have been these. I don't, I couldn't tell you. Jason's not amused. All right, I read those books. What do you want from yeah, me? Yeah, I want you. Yeah, I want an admission that you finished. You finished the books. Finished. Last you won't page. get anything out of me, Copper. Yes, I finished both books. You want me on that library? You need me on that library. <laughs> you want to say I was you in can't the library handle the books with the lead pipe? Yes, it's true. All right, with the books we are talking about in this episode are "The Lies of Locke Lamora" by Scott Lynch. It's a fantasy novel. It is the beginning of a series called the Gentleman Bastard series. And, uh, yes, there's more than one. And we are also going to talk about a book called Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. This was one of Scott's recommendations. I believe, Scott, you said this was your favorite book of 2013, correct? Uh, it certainly was. Wow. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huh. I, I, I wasn't going to say it, but... <laughs> Seems like nobody else agrees with me, but... So, uh... I am now going to sign this off. This podcast so is over. <laughs> Stop recording and say goodbye, suckers. Oh, okay. So let's start with uh, Eliza Lachlamora. Dan, you uh, you have been recommending this to me and bugging me uh, about reading this for so long that finally it went on sale on Amazon and you gifted me a copy. I for, did. For 99 cents or whatever. It was worth this. every penny. Read this. Well, I read it, you know, honestly, I think I read it in 2007 for the first time. So quite a long time now. It's been out for a while. Uh, and then I read the sequels as they arrived. And the most recent sequel arrived only last fall after many, many years between that and the second book. Um, and I loved it. I, I read it the same summer I read the uh, Patrick Rothfuss Name of the Wind um, and found them very, very similar. Huh. And indeed recently read a tweet by Patrick Rothfuss where he said, I have this idea for when Locke and Kvothe meet in a bar. <laughs> and I was like, I think my head just exploded. <laughs> wow. 
too much whimsy. I, I yeah, I found these. I I found these different. So I wonder, if, Dan, since you were the guy who bought me the book, uh, could you uh, take us through a little explanation of what sure. uh, the Lies of Locke Lamora is all about? Yeah, well, The Lives of Lockmore is a fantasy book. It takes place in the fictional uh, realm of Camor. Um, and it basically follows this crew of thieves um, named the Gentleman Bastards. And we sort of get a couple intertwining narratives. One, we get the past of the main character, well, the titular Locke Lamora, uh, and how he sort of grows up and gets taken into this group of thieves and eventually becomes their leader. Meanwhile, it's intertwined with a narrative from the present day as they try to pull off uh, a job. And what's notable about the thieves, and I think this struck me even more the second time I read it through, is that um, what they're doing is really unheard of in this world, which is to say they're not just thieves, though they are good thieves, they're con men. And nobody's really developed this art of the con yet, the long con. Um, and so we follow this long con that has all these, as as many good con stories and movies and, and books have, various layers. Uh, there's lots of people working against each other at various points. Um, and some rather terrible things happen later on in the book. Um, but I, I have to say, I do love this book. It's one of my favorites from the last several years. And I recommend it to many, many people. Anybody who really likes fantasy, I feel like it's not your typical, it's not like high fantasy, right? It's very, um, you know, it's concerned primarily with these guys who are the thieves and rogues. Um, there's not a lot of magic. There is some. There is, yes. Um, and it plays a, a kind of key role. I also really like the setting, which is uh, is sort of Renaissance Italy-based um, there's a lot of stuff with uh, uh, if the Italy was of it. built on the ruins of an alien civilization, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which it was, which is of some relevance, huh. but not a whole lot of relevance. But it's got the whole like there's it's essentially Venice, right? Like there's canals and there's um, you know people in masks and things like this, and it's got yes. a very a very Renaissance feel to if it. If the tallest buildings were constructed out of some sort of strange alien obsidian that had been there thousands, have of you years. been to Venice? Because I'm just saying, I, I haven't. Mm-hmm. But there you go. Are you saying there's alien obsidian? I'm in Venice? not saying there isn't. All right, fair enough. So that's that sums it up, I think. I think so. It, it's I heard somebody describe it to me. It might have even been you as sort of Ocean's Eleven in in a fantasy world because it is a a heist it is there's a there's a con game at work here what it what it reminded the setting reminded me of the uh that woody allen joke about how like my big brother beat up on me and my big sister beat up on my big brother and my parents beat up on us and the people across the hall beat up on them and the people downstairs beat up on our floor and the people in the next building beat up on our building and he builds this whole pyramid of people and he's at the bottom of it getting beat up and this is like that because there's like the, the the low thieves and then the the higher thieves rob from the lower thieves and the higher thieves rob and it's like this whole you get the sense this whole city is entirely uh, it's like a thief based economy and, yeah and these guys are trouble because they're like the they're they're like the thieves thieves of thieves they're the they, they break the rules right the rules are they've made the sort of head you know godfather like figure of the underworld has made this deal where the thieves don't steal from the nobles essentially um and so right Locke, they're protected right there's a secret peace between them and so Locke and his crew are secretly going behind the backs of the of the rest of the thieves and and ripping off nobles using these con games, um, and so they're playing this very difficult, this very risky game, uh, and it it may come back to bite them in the ass. <laughs> hmm. The only way to win that game is not to play. 
Or to play it really well, I suppose. But yeah, I guess that's I the wrong lesson to really take. Really good. <laughs> yeah, you can win it by winning. That's another way to win that game. Mm. Well, Traditional, little, little known fact about the game. You take a risk that somebody will come into your lair and kill everybody. <laughs> oh, did I spoil something? There's oh, lots no. of people die in this book. Lots of characters are horribly, horribly well, killed. Sometimes you have to sacrifice some pawns to uh, do something. I don't know. I don't know. So. I, without without blowing, I mean, I gave a little. That was a little minor spoiler. Lots of people <laughs> die. Little in this book. minor <laughs> spoiler. Well, no, I mean, you could read the book and you wouldn't know. You're not like, oh, I'm going to wait for people to die. Oh, people died. Oh, more people died. Lots of people die in the book. It's lots just, of people die. It happens. True. There's lots of murder and and it is uh, it is things yeah, go wrong in the and, in the George R. R. Martin school of there are very few people who are sacred. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So here's here's the thing that got me about this book structurally, and it's right at the at beginning. So I'm not I'm not skipping ahead too much to say, uh, I found its structure really weird because there's this whole prologue that goes on seemingly forever, and it reads like you're reading the beginning of a novel about this child who is taken in by this um, by this kind of Fagin esque, just like you know, it's yeah. a it's the poor orphans come to this underground lair where they learn to steal, and they and there's again a chain of of who beats up on who and who takes whose money that they've stolen and all of that. And this goes on for you know, it seemed like a long time. It seemed like fifty pages, seventy pages. I don't know how long it was. And I get to the end of it, and I thought, oh, okay, well, this this was a little long and it was a little slow, but I'm intrigued about what happens next to this little kid. And I turn the page, and it says. <laughs> chapter one and i go what the hell wait that was still the prologue yes that was still the prologue and then chapter one begins and it's a totally different time frame and it's these it's these kind of wise guy crooks who are working on a scheme and i'm thinking to myself has there been an error have i had a stroke (laughs) has my kindle rebooted what has what has just happened and in the end we discover that there there is this it's not entirely the A plot and the B plot because it, it does drop off sort of after a, there's there are flashbacks to explain things in the plot, but it kind of keeps accelerating. But it goes for a while, and I kept thinking. I, I it I guess what I'm saying is it kind of frustrated me because I felt like there was sort of it was slowing things down at a point where I wasn't being kind of the good kind of tormented of like no 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 I want to find out what happens next. It was more like oh more of this now okay. Um, and it picked up eventually, but it, it was, I thought this was a really slow starter and I, I, I really struggled first through, through the beginning of chapter one. And I can say that cause it was very long, uh, to get there. So I, I thought that was strange. I thought it was a strange way to start. It is a little, it is a little, uh, unconventional and I agree. There's a lot of that. Um, it was different for me cause I was reading it for the most recently for the second time. I can't tell you how much I, what I thought of it the first time cause that was many years ago, but, um, this time around knowing what was coming, I was like, all right, I'm filling in the backstory and remembering all these things about his childhood, but but also knowing that that wasn't the main thrust of the plot. Um, and I think even even Scott Lynch has said himself that you know, yeah, if, if you would go back, he would do it differently. But yeah, it, Too late it is now. what it is. Well, yeah. Dan, I brought in your past self from 2007, uh, and he's going to join us now to tell us what he thought. No, sorry, I uh, really liked it. <laughs> oh boy, I had not quit smoking at that point. It wow. was very unfortunate. Wow, Dan, Dan, in 2007, you sounded like sort of a high-voiced, confused Scott McNulty. It was strange. It's very weird. It was very I've, I've worked was, hard to lose that time. accent. Monty, what did you uh, what did what did you think of uh, the Liza Lachlamora? Um, I enjoyed it enormously. I don't know if I think it's a good book or a bad book, but I really, really like the character of Locke so much that it carries me through almost any any amount of 
gratuitous murder. <laughs> of, of which there is quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> like, I really like that Locke is consistently drawn. He's got his superpower, which I can say because it's in the title of the book. He's a very good liar. Yes. And at any point, in order to get out of whatever situation he has gotten himself in, he, he will probably get out by being a very good liar. And I appreciate that kind of consistency in a book that let's say he's in a sword fight. He's not necessarily the greatest sword fighter, but sword fighting plus lying will result in him winning. I enjoy Locke so much that, well, I want to say I would watch him do anything, but I never got around to reading the later books in the series. So that would strictly be true. <laughs> so you don't love him that much but presented with him doing something i am enjoy i enjoy watching it happen and he's got his little friends he's got his little gang well i mean so you've got his i mean it's like it's like watching a a buddy cop show mm-hmm. to a certain extent right because you've got you've also got gene tannen who is the other sort of main ish character um and the two of them have a rapport that is very reminiscent of you know a lot of character driven procedural shows yeah and um, my favorite classic fantasy series is Fafford and the Grey Mouser by Fritz Leiber. So I like seeing sort of their descendants in the D&D thief class <laughs> sticking around. Scott, what about you? What do, what do you think of, uh, of Eliza Locke Lamora? Uh, well, I thought that I had read this book years ago, and I just looked at my uh, list of books that I read last year. And apparently I read it in March. So... <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Uh, I don't. That really has no bearing on if I like the book or not. I did like the book. Uh, it was uh, the first one I thought. So there are three so far in the series. The first one is the strongest. The second one is the weakest, uh, and the third one I think is the second strongest. Um, so I think he does a good job of creating these characters, like everyone said, and putting them into interesting situations. Uh, I don't know if it adds up to much overall. Uh, but I thought it was an enjoyable read, and uh, I did get find it annoying. Uh, the I read the Wikipedia entry, and they list the uh, characters in the book, and at the the last person they list is uh, Sabatha, right. who doesn't appear in this novel. <laughs> yes, which I found it was kind of like uh, Sir not appearing in this film, often mentioned, never seen. Uh, in fact, me. not seen in either of the first two books. <laughs> It's true. And in the third book, she appears. She she is a very major character in the third book, but it does take a long time to see her. I mean, you sort of get an idea. She is a character drawn by her absence. Like, Mm -hmm. there is a... I I always pronounce it Sabitha, Sabitha, I don't know. But there's a a hole in her shape that runs through the entire narrative. They they talk a lot about her. And you, you realize in the third book, that's because she is a integral, integral part, especially of Locke's life. Um, but it is it is an interesting <laughs> take on not having such an integral character in you know after doing you know a thousand pages about these guys. Yeah, it's a strange decision. All right, time for a break to talk about our sponsor, MailRoute. MailRoute is the leading hosted service that keeps your email clean and protects your email servers. It sits between your email servers and the internet. It takes in your mail, scans it for viruses and spam, and then passes the good stuff along to you. So there's no hardware or software required to install or maintain MailRoute. 
Now let's look here. I'm using MailRoute for my domain, and if I log into the easy tools that are available for every user on MailRoute.net, I see I've got a fake life insurance ad. I've got something called Deep Sea Miracle Nutrient. I've got a fake Amazon gift card that's totally a scam. And this is just stuff that's come in today as I record this. Uh, there's a great thing called spam. That's really nice that they tell you that it's spam. It's in here. I never got any of this. This stuff is there on the server in case there's something that they find that they think is spam, but it turns out is not. They send you a really convenient email that you can configure how often you get it, and you can whitelist things straight from there and have them auto-deliver them message into your mail. But most of the time, I don't even go to the web uh, other than to gloat about all this uh, terrible mail that isn't going in my inbox. That's what MailRoute does. They're focusing on delivering only the clean email you want. And if you're an admin, the tools are built with you in mind. There's an API. They support LDAP, Active Directory, TLS, you name it, all sorts of things that you'd want from people who are handling your email. And if you're a single user or a small domain like mine, I've got my friends and family on it, there are no user minimums. So large or small, universal universities, governments, corporations, and the little guy, MailRoute can handle you. For a free trial and one-step sign-up, here's where you go, MailRoute.net slash incomparable, and you'll let them know that we sent you, and you get 10% off for the lifetime of your account. And thank you so much to MailRoute for cleaning my mailbox and for sponsoring the incomparable. So one of the things I really liked, I liked, I liked when the book picked up, when the the uh, the scheme was in place, uh, when there's almost a, I mean, I was going to say it's almost a Godfather like. It is a Godfather like thing. There is the head of organized crime. He there's a Godfather. There there is a Godfather, <laughs> and then there's a plot against the Godfather, and and, and there's this there's this new guy, the 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 gray uh, king. king, the gray king, and yes. and uh, so that there is this whole sort of like Godfather like bloody set of of horrible things that happen murders that happen in order to have this organized crime thing and 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 Locke has to make a decision at one point late in the book in terms of getting some revenge or saving a lot of people and so you've got that do you want to okay you, we know you're a thief but are you somebody who is more concerned with killing this person who d- did you wrong or are you a more heroic person who will make that decision and that's really interesting and my favorite thing single favorite thing in the entire book is there's a great uh, double twist, basically, where we are uh, we're, we're seeing Locke doing a put on and um, and realizing that he's 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 put a, a a fake story inside another fake story that that he that he actually lets the people he's conning know they're being conned in order to set up a second con, which then there is another party that is trying. I mean, that's, that's made me laugh out loud where I'm like, wait, cons within cons within cons. That was really, that was really very funny using his powers of disguise and his lying. He's literally telling a story to somebody then dressing up in another costume, breaking into their house and telling them a different story. Don't trust that guy. Don't trust that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was, that was really, that was really funny. And at the end, the action is really excellent. And, and the, the payoffs of all the, all the deaths I thought were interesting. There's a, uh, there's a little hand waving. There's a, there's a ship that's parked in the harbor that's sort of like, (laughs) and that ship is out there. Why is it there? Don't worry about it. Tell you later. <laughs> um, but, you know, that part was fun. It was just the slow. I felt like he had so much that he wanted to do. He was so happy with this uh, idea of where Locke Lamora came from that he took a lot of time to talk about that. When, um, you know, I, I, I kind of then when I when when we switch time frames and they're they're like 
in this alley and they're riding horses and they're going in a boat and all this stuff. I'm like, who are these guys and why? And it just, I was exhausted at that point and I didn't really want to, I, I, I was losing patience with the book. So I'm glad I stuck with it, but it really, it was a rough start, I'd say. I did think the finale was maybe a little bit Princess Bridey. <laughs> Not that yeah. that's entirely a bad thing. It just... With even more getting stabbed, I feel like. <laughs> There's a lot of stab. It's very stabby. It's well, a- and I like, I mean, to Monty's point, I liked the idea that, you know, the sort of ultimate uh, way that it plays out is not that, he, you know, Locke is not your sword, you know, swashbuckling sword swinging hero, right? He's a guy who can take a punch and take a lot of punches. And eventually his buddy, who is a serious bruiser, shows up. Um, and so it was, you know, he's not, he's really good at some things, but he's not good at everything. Yeah. And I think that's what makes him a fun character to watch. He he is also incredibly flawed. <laughs> he's no Miles Verkosigan. I mean, Miles Verkosigan has his own flaws. And in fact, I think Locke and Miles are actually very similar in that they're both very clever and both, you know, very smart and, and resilient, but at the same time, extremely confident of their own abilities and sometimes to the point of their downfall. Anything else we should we should mention about uh, Liza Locke Lamora? Um, it is bloody. There's lots of murder and counter murder. There's a uh, there's a really nice uh, couple of set pieces in a tower that is up in these crazy kind of alien built um, obsidian skyscraper thingies. Where there's a there's a good uh, bit with an elevator. Where he jumps on an yep. jumps on an elevator. Um, there's a couple great. I mean, one of my favorite little set pieces is just a story told in sort of, uh, you know, in passing, which is about the Godfather-like character and how he comes to power at one point because he has this thing where he puts, he has this really nice rug and he keeps having people come in and every time he's going to like kill people, like they've rolled up the rug and put it away. And so he invites like all the other crime, he does this for years. And then the, all the other crime bosses come in one day and they're all a little wary. He's like, oh, the rug's there. He won't ruin the rug. And then he kills all of them and just throws out the rug. And I was like, I like that because that seems like yeah. a clever, you know, conceit and something that somebody who is a crime boss and particularly brutal would do. Yeah. It's true, but it is a nice rug. It is a nice rug. But you know, sometimes you uh when you're making an omelet, you got to break a few rugs. It ties the room together. Also these these sub the subplot with the the spider, I think is is also one of the I I like the development of that character because it very easily could have been a kind of uh, stereotypical, tropish, you know, spy master character, and instead it turns out to be someone who is not entirely who you suspect. Well, the end of that was very strange. That was that was part of the ending that I that maybe this is part of what Monty was getting to. At the very end, it's sort of like, well, now I'm going to retire as spy master, and you two sort of random characters that don't really seem qualified to be this at all, and this <laughs> is the most important job in the entire country. You will be the new spy masters. Goodbye. And I thought, wait, but those, they kind of suck. Why would you, what, you know, come on. Is this a con? Is this some sort of con? They were the best that Kimor heads off. That's pretty sad. It is pretty sad. They keep getting ripped off. They're, they're the first people who actually got like seriously con. So, you know, they have experience now. I, I guess that, that seemed, that seemed all too, uh, law of economy of characters for me that it was like you you're nearby you be this new thing now goodbye and that didn't that didn't really make a lot of sense for me but all, all in all I, I mean i liked it i did not curse your name dan 
after that's I finished it. Probably good. Um, I actually was like, "Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Dan, for buying me a book and making <laughs> oh. me making me read it." So I, I would have been sad if you didn't like it. I, I, it is. It remains one of my favorites. I enjoyed rereading it immensely. <laughs> so sequel sequels. We mentioned this. Uh, we mentioned this before, where Scott told us that the second one was bad and that, that therefore by the process of elimination the third would be the second best that was a, a lot of people apparently ranking. didn't like the third and i was even seeing some people in the chat room say that i enjoyed the third and part of that has to do with the fact that sabitha is a major character in it i'm just gonna pronounce her name that way because that's how i say it in my head um and i like the rapport between her and Locke. it does succumb a little bit to too much of the um you know like kind of like a will they won't they sort of scenario um, but okay. they also clearly have a lot of history. There's also a, a again, they do the sort of thing where they have a a second, second thread that tells a story from when they are younger. Ah, uh, yeah. That that sort of goes along at the same time, which is also in and of itself kind of a cool con setup. Um, but yeah, I agree with Scott. The second one is the weakest, though it has some necessary things in it as far as the plot goes and the development of those characters go. Yeah, if you want to read these books i would not suggest skipping the second one just be prepared to be disappointed you would be very surprised at the beginning of the third book is we're all I'm lowering the bar here is what we're doing well i mean there's still some great stuff and there's great character moments and i think that's what draws me through it even when the plots i feel like aren't as strong the relationship between Locke and gene is sort of the bedrock on which these stories are built and that remains pretty solid in my opinion um, so I think that's kind of the thread that keeps me going through it is the relationship between those two characters. Yeah. And I like Gene as a character. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I like him more than I like Locke, frankly. But. <laughs> well, you don't like Miles either, so that kind of jibes. <laughs> it's true. I like Locke more than I like Miles, though. So if, I, if I'm if i ranking... And Gene and Ivan, right? <laughs> uh, I do like Ivan more than I like uh, Miles and Locke. It's true. <laughs> yeah, Locke is a... You know he is he's this mysterious uh figure whereas gene you get the sense well, i mean we know gene's story and we know where yes. he's coming from in a way that we right. don't really from Locke. and you know that, that that's to gene's advantage exactly. mm-hmm. he's a known entity he's he's a stalwart companion uh he's kind of the friar tuck i suppose to <laughs> Locke's robin hood oh fair enough not okay. as mercurial but you know like he's saying more of a steady a steady guiding influence. Yeah. I feel like we know Locke pretty well. He's a guy who lies all the time and makes things way more complicated than he has to. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> that is true. It's all about style. As long as it's consistent, I'm fine with that. Well, that, that's one of the things that in, a, in a, a story like this where you've got this kind of roguish hero who's kind of, you know, he's a, he's a hero, but he is also roguish, right? Um, one of the things that I like about it is that he he, he is he pushes it a little too far sometimes because he just can't help himself. And that's a, you know, it's fun to see that, to see him like, well, let's try this. Oh, that didn't work. Right. And that's, that's one part of the enjoyment of it. It's that, uh, yeah, he's a little bit of a scoundrel in, in some, in some cases. And I riding by the seat of his pants. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's going to get him into trouble one day, but you just got to let him do it because you love him so much. You know, that's just it. He's a lovable scamp. He is. (laughs) Someone in the, someone someone in the chat room is saying that these sequels are on the level of the Matrix sequels. Yes. I'm going to disagree with that person. All right. (laughs) That's kind of harsh. (laughs) That person, uh, A.F. Waller, really did not like the sequels. Yeah. Or really like the Matrix sequels. Oh, well. (laughs) That's true. Let's let's not discount that unlikely but possible uh, possibility. So my question for you guys then is, uh, for for Dana and Scott who have read the other books, uh, should I go down that path or should I not? 
Hmm. It is a path fraught with peril. <laughs> if you liked, if you came out on balance positive on the first book, I feel like there's stuff to enjoy in the sequels. Yeah. Well, it depends on why <laughs> why you read books, right? If you are, <laughs> aren't there like two thousand words or two thousand pages more of these books? Yeah, just I, keep going. Uh, yes. I read if books you... to learn things and get tips about uh, medieval and and uh, magical cons. Oh, then, well, then please. Have, we got some books for you. <laughs> have at it. <laughs> All right. Well, no, I think that the these are very character driven, and if you enjoy the characters of Locke and Jean, then by all means, read all right. the books. If you are more interested in a plot that perhaps makes sense, <laughs> maybe not. Fair enough. Well, I, I will say this: given everything you've said about the second book in the series, it the bar is set rather low. My expectations are not set so high. If I do enter it, I'll be like, all right, let's see how bad this is. And then maybe I'll be surprised. Jason, how do you feel about boats? I'm great at boats. You're great at boats? Excellent, excellent. Then then the second book, let me tell you, you'll be all over that. <laughs> lots of boats, huh? Lots right. of boats. <laughs> I'm interested in the comings and goings of various boats. There's a lot of nautical intrigue. Interesting. Okay, we should move on, but... Uh, <laughs> That is The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. It's available everywhere. I wouldn't wait around for Dan Morin to buy you a copy because I think <laughs> Sorry, uh, he only does that for uh, for me. Aww. Stingy. Yeah. Maybe maybe some of our other fine panelists. You didn't buy me a copy. Or, or I'm assuming you didn't buy Monty a copy either. It's true. You guys already read it. Well, yeah. probably. How convenient for you. Yeah. <laughs> lucky, <laughs> lucky Dan. Lucky Dan. That's what they call me. All right, time to take a brief break so I can tell you about our sponsor, lynda.com. lynda.com is the place to learn things on the internet. Lots of high-quality videos. How many? More than 2,000 high-quality video courses taught by experts. New courses added all the time. One low monthly price, $25 a month, and you have access to the entire course library. Learn as much as your brain can handle. Now, I've been taking some courses on lynda.com. I've told you about some of them in the past. As a self-taught audio guy, I find having the experts at lynda.com explain to me what the heck I've been doing and what I've been doing wrong to be really interesting. They've got lots of courses about recording audio, about compression and noise gates and expanders and things that I just don't know anything about, and I use them in preset ways that smarter people than me have told me about and now i can start to understand it because i'm looking at those courses on lynda.com same about logic which i used to edit the podcast lynda.com has huge amounts of logic material but it doesn't stop there they've got other audio programs and then they've got you name it excel photoshop dreamweaver wordpress photography videography web and app development there's the latest versions of os 10 icloud iwork Aperture, the entire creative suite, iPad tips and tricks, you, you name it, you can learn about it on lynda.com. Like I said, the people who teach these courses are the experts. These are not people who are just kind of making this up. These are working professionals at the top of their game, and now they're going to teach you with these very clear, professionally done videos how to do these things, how to learn these skills. And it definitely works because I have learned so much from my short time using lynda.com. And the courses are really well structured. You can learn from start to finish. You can jump to a particular chapter. There's a text transcript. Really well done. You can get a free trial and access the entire library as part of your free trial. You go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com, slash 
incomparable. That's lynda.com slash incomparable. And thanks so much to lynda.com for teaching me to be a better audio editor and for sponsoring the incomparable. All right, let's move on and talk about Ancillary Justice, which is a more recent book because it was published last year and Scott really loved it. And Leckie. Um, So Scott, you you described this in a previous episode briefly, but I was wondering if you could do us the favor again. I I was struck by it being... um, a little bit like I've only read a couple Ian Banks culture novels, but it felt mm-hmm. a little bit like that. It yeah. seemed to have a very similar kind of feel in that in that space opera with a, a an you know humanish but yet very alien culture uh, at the center of it. Yes, it is. It is quite Banksian, I suppose, if that's mm-hmm. a word. It is now. Unfortunately, it means uh, like the street artist Banksy. Oh, Banksy. Oh, that's too <laughs> that's bad. True. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That is not what I got from this book. Like your local uh, safe savings and loan. It's that. It's very much like your local bank. That's right. Uh, in that I uh, was very interested in it. Huh? little banking mm. joke. Anybody? No? All right. Anyway. Perhaps you should have saved it. I'm going to assess you a fee for bad jokes. <laughs> oh, um, so yes, this was, it is a, it is a kind of a, a modern, in the vein of the modern space opera, right? Uh, it involves this character named, uh, Breck, who is, uh, we should, we should fire off the spoiler horn and then insert it retroactively before Sp- Scott, uh, explained all of those things about the ruler of the Ratch. So, uh, <laughs> let's fire Oops. off the spoiler horn now for ancillary justice. Right. Hard to describe, right? So, so Breck is one facet of an artificial intelligence that ran a ship. Uh, that something happened to it. We don't know in the beginning of the novel what what's going on with Breck. And Breck is part of an alien race that doesn't really have a concept of gender. Uh, and Breck also doesn't really have the isn't totally comfortable being an individual, which makes it an in, an interesting viewpoint character uh, because you've you've got gender confusion. Uh, and a, a protagonist that's not quite certain of its own individuality, which is uh, an interesting combination. Uh, and so Breck uh, spent most of its time, uh, I think about a thousand years, being this part of this uh, multifaceted intelligence that uh, ran this ship. The Justice uh, of Torin. The Justice of Torin, that's right. And they, they you know go about doing things and conquering planets uh, and the way that the society propagates itself is that it much like the roman empire uh it kept conquering its neighbors uh and to uh manufacture soldiers they would take the corpses of the uh conquered worlds and uh store them in their ships well i I think technically they would make them corpses well that's true and then they would store the corpses it's not taking not taking pre-existing corpses because that would be crazy process that first involves killing the native population it's a little uh like plan nine now that i think about it (laughs) that's true uh and then the these bodies are stored on the ship and the ship can uh insert some sort of technology that it then takes over the bodies and those bodies then house different facets of its intelligence uh but they are all uh kind of uh, one whole yet separate beings um Kind of like the Holy Trinity, you know? Uh, <laughs> only completely different in a spaceship. Okay, this podcast um, is now blasphemy. 
<laughs> so thanks, Scott. Thanks a lot. Hey, do what the I can. Pope That's has just typical... condemned our podcast. Good job. <laughs> the Pope is a Jesuit. He's cool with us. All right. Fair enough. He prefers the sparrow, though. He does probably. Well, maybe not. Depends. Well, yeah, sort of you're right. Yeah, the character you're right. Him, all right. Uh, and so anyway, this character Breck uh, is on a quest to find a gun. Uh, we're not sure why uh, until it becomes clear that he wants to. Well, she, I guess, wants to kill the ruler of uh, his civilization, uh, the Lord of the Radish. I guess Radish. Uh, and we find out that the Lord <laughs> the, the of Radish? the Radish, yeah. Rad- uh, is in fact not one person, but uh, has hundreds of thousands, or maybe not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of bodies that uh, are all connected in some way. Uh, and uh, unbeknownst to us, the Lord of the Radich, who uh, apparently is uh, you know driving force of the society, uh, and who everyone thinks of as this sacrosanct person, is in fact splintering within itself and fighting an internal civil war amongst its own bodies, uh, and using the various ships against itself so that uh, the l- one version of the Lord of Radich would visit a ship and then erase the fact that it was there, and then another version would come and erase the version that was already there. It gets a little confusing. Yeah, but that, that was a very, uh, very uh, like, why did Hal go crazy in 2001? It's that it had conflicting orders, and that's sort of what happens in, in Ancillary Justice is there's the leader of this empire but the leader itself is um, co- I- issuing conflicting orders because it's at war with itself, and this is freaking out these uh, artificial intelligences on these ships. I thought right, that I was what to do. really clever. I, at the same time, I was a little confused because the only other people, quote-unquote, that we saw with the multi-body things were ships as opposed to the emperor who is also— who is a, presumably all of those are people— Yes, it's it's a little weird because they're not quite analogous in that like one is clearly corpses of this like of like AI, whereas one is a person's consciousness spread over many bodies. It's a hard book to summarize, I think. Yes, agreed, agreed. I mean, at well, at a certain level, it's it's very straightforward. Uh, Breck is seeking vengeance, uh, but against a tyrant, basically. But explaining, I think it's much more nuanced than that, and there's a lot of yeah. going on. Beyond well, it, it's nuanced, and yet on another level, I, I get the sense that Breck isn't quite sure what exactly she's going to do. She's sort of like, well, I'm going to get the gun. The gun can 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 make some trouble. I'm going to make some trouble, and we'll see how much trouble I can make before they but it, kill me. But she, she also knows that she can't kill the emperor. Yeah. I'm just going to call it right. the emperor, Lord of the Rats, because yeah. it... He, she has many bodies, and thus it's impossible for you, for one to kill all of them. Right. And there's a point towards the end of the book where Breck even says, I then realized that my whole plan was impossible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. Well, thanks. <laughs> well, also, what's weird about the Civil War is that, and I kind of actually dug this, which was, which side is the right side? And it turns out, Neither of them, right? Like, basically, there's one that might be slightly more beneficial to Breck's continued existence. Right. And there are some philosophical differences there, but at the same time, she's kind of trying to kill all of them. Well, the, the, it's not like there's a good one and a bad one. It, it, right. It's more like there's politics. Because like, the, the, the Ratch Empire is 
I, and I called it the Ratch. I don't know. That's, like that works for me. Uh, but it, it's it's they're they're not very nice. They're they're no, they they, they conquer bad. these planets and they do all these terrible things. And actually, one of the things I really appreciate about this book is that we don't. You know, in I would I would say like '50s sci-fi, you could have a story like this about a uh, a hive mind made up of bodies, and and you wouldn't worry about who these things these people were before. Well, we took dead bodies and we and we made them into people, and and the plot of Ancillary Justice pivots on the mistreatment of the people by the Empire and a and a massacre, and so. It's not they don't steer away at all from the kind of horrific society that causes this scenario to exist. It's part of the story. I really like that. And and instead what we get with the two warring factions within the Emperor, which is, you know, is that that's like ego and superego or whatever. It's except spread out on all these bodies. It's kind of interesting. The internal conflict of the Emperor is now external. But what's at the end, politically, what the difference is, is that they, they ran into this alien race. And the alien race looked at them and said, um, wow, you're really two things, right? It's like you were the first interesting species that we would actually consider sentient. So we're not going to completely destroy you, but also you are really bad. And um, <laughs> we are going to do bad things to you if you don't stop. And one of the one part of the emperor wants to say, screw those guys. And the other one is the one who said, all right, I guess we're going to have to stop expanding our empire and just sit here and not conquer even any other kind of human cultures. We're just going to sit it out. And then they have this fight. And it's an interesting thing because in that, in that way, you're kind of rooting for the aliens who have said, stop, you guys are, are bad. You need to stop this. Right. Well, and there's all these other like little plots of, uh, you know, that in retrospect are clues that sort of make up this civil war, right? Cause we get these flashbacks to, um, so part of it is the flashbacks to that last occupation, annexation, whatever you want to call it. And we actually see Breck, as a ship at that point, experiencing that whole annexation and that sort of being one of the tipping points. Um, but we also have these couple pivotal events. They talk about, a, was it Ime, where there's like a governor who's going like corrupt and is doing things behind people's backs. And it turns out maybe that plays into the Civil War. And then there's also the whole incident with the gun itself and where it came from, which was to say the aliens, I think they provide it to yeah. another group that's like really gun running that's happening in the background here which is where that, like gun invisible gun running though <laughs> that's important <laughs> yes inv invisible armor piercing shield piercing gun running one of the people in the chat room pointed out something that's very nice which is you know you could argue that since one of the emperors is is basically on the side of not uh conquering all these planets and killing all the people to use as as corpse soldiers and the other one is in favor of that that you could be a you could probably lean to the one side i, I think what well, we're saying is more that that neither of them was without sin here there one may be worse than the other that's true but they do they make they make they make a clear point though that the uh, the the normal Radich troops are much worse yes, than the corpse exactly. troops, right? And, and that they cause many more massacres than the corpse. So I mean, not that I am pro corpse yeah. troop. <laughs> I mean, I'm just you, saying it's more. Admit it, McNulty. <laughs> if you don't want corpse troops, then your door hinges are going to be all gunky. <laughs> That's right. That in that in that ends up being a problem. I yeah, I don't know. I didn't find either of those either of the factions particularly cut cut and dried when it came to that. I mean, and and that's interesting in some ways. It's probably better than if it was simply black and white. But at the same time, I I felt like 
the differences were not exactly subtle, but like I had to, you know, wait, is this okay? So this guy's talking about this, but we also talked about why that was good. You know, like having the ancillaries is better than humans in some places. So like you're trying to balance that. And I think it, it ends up being, I kind of with Breck, let's just kill them all. (laughs) Like God sorted out. (laughs) Having these dead, these people we've killed brought back as, uh, slave bodies for Definitely the AIs creepy. is Definitely creepy. not good. <laughs> but our hero is ostensibly one of those too, yeah. which is, which makes it somewhat you know inter- and, and remembers having all these ancillaries and being really happy. So you know, so this this is the richness. Judge? This is the richness of this of this book is that we've got this high level uh, background that the story is told against, which is as as broad widescreen space opera as you get it's a, a, an alien or a human empire and an alien empire and the taking over planets and converting dead bodies into ship uh, ancillaries and all of that and yet and then inside that we've got this struggle of identity with breck who is you know we haven't even talked very much about this is a hive mind where one of the bees, you know, and all the bees are of human intelligence, they're people, and then one of them gets cut off from all the others. So they're the, they are the impression of the hive mind, and they have been thinking of themselves as the hive mind all along, and now all of a sudden Breck is a person. And what's fascinating is Breck even has a hard time thinking of herself as a person. She's a ship that happens to be in one ancillary, when in fact she is what we would call a person, uh, and that's fa- that's fascinating to me that th- yeah. that there's this real struggle. Um, this is a character who starts out you're sort of kind of wandering and depressed, and and because um, she's lost, I mean everything. She's lost most of herself, and that and she is this last echo of almost like a ghost, a, an echo of a creature that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, to Breck, Breck's name is Justice of Torin because that was the name of the ship that Breck was the AI of. It's not even that. It's Justice of Torin, and she was the one esque, one esque, one esque seventeen or something 19, like that. Nineteen, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a one of this huge thing, and that's all that's left is one esque nineteen. Which is why I thought the whole concept, which made this book just uh, very interesting to me, which is you know, why it was my favorite book of the year because I just thought there were so many layers to it, uh, and it took kind of a familiar story and gave it a very interesting and new twist and spin to it. Uh, and plus, I think she's a good writer. I could have done with fewer layers. Like, <laughs> well, it, I can't get murky. I felt the book had too many ideas. Like, the ongoing thing about how Breck doesn't know what gender people are that uh, meant yeah. nothing yep. and just got in the way. Yeah, that, really, that was like a gimmick really to me. It really confused the hell out Like. Because and I and I understand if you're making a point about like you know in the future gender doesn't matter if you're and like you know that's totally cool I'm all on board with that but the fact that it was used in such a place where it's like I can't picture these characters yeah because and I just, don't know if it's like maybe I should not be bound by the constructs of gender but guess what I am because I live what? in the 21st century and that we still do things that way speak for yourself if you're going to tell a story about gender um, this is a great idea if you're going to tell a story that's not about gender. Really, I mean, it is about identity in a way, but it's not really about gender identity. Yeah, it, it, it's a strange choice. I, I was struck early on. They flee out of this town and go, and and their their ship crashes, and they're in the snow, and they're walking to get to, in this super cold planet, and they're walking to get to this place. And I was really reminded of the Left Hand of Darkness, which hmm. is uh, which I my memory of that book is it's it's a it's very cold <laughs> the whole book. It's a cold, <laughs> cold thing. And that was a book that was about gender and gender identity. And and 
it would make sense for a book like that. This book is not, I just, I felt not about that. And she had a really clever idea and it is clever. And there's a very funny moment where this, this person she's been toting around and referring to as a her all along, you realize is a man because she's like, uses the other language and you're like, oh, male. Okay. That's yeah, new but information. Then she, Wait, but is he? I, but, I don't know that that's true. Yes. Like I, someone uses it, but in the the whole point is in the Radikai language they don't have any gender. No, but right? but but she translates and remembers. Oh, I'm using this language, so I need to say that it, that, that that it's male, that she's male, and and so you get that. But it's only in these times when the crack shows, and it's it, you know it's interesting to 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 see through the little crack yeah. in the language to to the gender. But in the end, was it really necessary for this book? Yeah, I don't think so. I'd say I'd save that for a book that really has things to say about gender. I highlighted it on page 161 to 409, 39% of the way through the book. It is clear, as Breck talks to Strigan, that Savarden is male. Yes, but yes. But as soon as the scene's over, Breck goes back to calling Savarden her. Because Breck thinks in terms of, of the Ratch uh, genderless yeah. language. And I expect in a sequel it will be made clear that Savarden is in love with Breck, but I don't see why we need the gender confusion to conceal that because yeah. Breck's not going to notice anyway and we don't know what gender Breck is and I love I kind of assume female but again that's just the she, she is the word that's used all the female pronouns are used throughout yeah well I thought that was clever but it was yes. just to the point of yeah the confusion of it made it it made it harder for me it took me out of the story because it did yeah. trying to picture a character in my head I just wasn't sure what to picture I, I had a hard time getting a drawn character and and that's just the way I read it's like you know Im- I have that imagery in my head so it made it difficult for me and I agree with you Jason if it was something that was really central to the point of the book I think it could be really interesting but in this book it, it just took me out of the story well, I think it was central, not specifically the gender. Uh, like, I don't think uh, this book is making a big point about gender, but it is making a big point about identity and alienness and how Breck as a character is unsure of itself and what it is. And then as as the readers, this uncertainty about gender kind of puts us in, it confuses us. It makes it a little more difficult and frustrating to read, yes, but it kind of lets you sympathize with Breck because Breck is going through this on a much larger scale. But it didn't make me sympathize with Breck. It made me wonder if Breck was, even for an AI out of its computer, <laughs> stupid. Because there was a time when Breck could read Savarden's heartbeat. Breck should know everything about Savarden's physical form. And Breck has had what was it, like 12 years walking among people? Right. It's not that hard to learn the difference between a male and a female body. I could cover it in a couple of sentences well, tops. I, th- I think I think her point is 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 not that they don't know, it's that it doesn't matter culturally. Right. They they, they consider it irrelevant. And that language, it's that old, uh, I'm going to bring bring out some UCSD comm majoring now, Monty. Uh, it's the old Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that uh, language defines uh that defines culture and the way we think. And so the idea, I mean, that's the idea is they don't have concepts of gender. It's not that gender isn't there. And they know that when a, when, when a male, she and a female, she love each other very much, they can make a baby. (laughs) She, but, um, but that uh, the idea is that they just don't think in those terms. And so Breck doesn't think in those terms. I, I, I agree though. I, I just don't think it, I, I don't think those issues are the issues of identity that the book is about. I think all it does is it does add to the confusion and makes us kind of confused like Breck, but I think it's a neat idea, but I think this book has a bunch of ideas and it, 
this one could have been taken out and I would have liked the book more. I also would have preferred to have fewer wacky alien spellings because I don't necessarily picture the people while I'm reading a book, but I do try to pronounce the words in my head. And when I have to deal with the red chai and the err. Oh, well, that was a joke. That was, I thought the err was a really funny joke. I I was amused by that. The err, who were like six R's. And that's their, that's their name? Yeah, that's their... Because when you talk to them, they go err. Okay. I think my, my other issue that sort <laughs> of um, uh, held me up in this book from really loving it was having... I, the characterization I found tough at times in terms of... You can have likable characters and unlikable characters, and I thought most of the characters in this book were unlikable, um, or I did not like them, I should say, I guess. Um, Savardin is, at least for the first half of the book, is made to be extremely unpleasant. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. um, and I, in fact, as the I will say, as the book concluded, I felt more sympathy towards Savardin than any of the other characters. Yeah. I mean, Breck, to a certain extent, um, but the problem is Breck seems uh, having that identity confusion almost makes Breck a blank page. Right. Um, and so there are some moments where you get to see um, that ca- the character of Breck do interesting things. I thought the scene with the bridge, um, you know, that's sort of the selfless moment where she realizes that Savardin is going to fall. And so jumps off a bridge to save uh, Savardin and you know incurs great damage yeah, to itself. A great risk to and, herself. Yeah. Um, was was it that is a moment where I was like, all right, I feel like I'm I'm now getting on board with these characters. But it does. I think that is the challenge of writing a character that is supposed to be a construct, which is to say, Breck has a personality, but not necessarily. It's lacking something of its humanity, and that may be part of the point. But it is it makes it difficult for me to step into the shoes and empathize with that character. Um, also, from a plot perspective, so much of this plot seems to hinge on the coincidental meeting of Savardin and Breck at the beginning. Which, and I know they make repeated reference to the fact that the the Radchai don't see coincidences, right? Everything is everything right. as a coincidence is actually the hand of God, or yeah. um, but. It is a like. There's a character. Savardin has been lost for a thousand years, and happens to show up on the planet where Breck is walking. And like, I don't know that. I, you got to go with it because it starts off the book, and that's basically what what get things going. But it, it seemed just so incredibly implausible to me. I, that didn't bother me because I figured that if you've been a, the AI on a ship in this empire for all that time, you've met thousands and thousands of officers. And for one of them to end up face down in a ditch, a thousand a, years out of time. Yeah, well, a I, thousand I, years. That seems like I mean, you know, when they're talking about people who live like two hundred years, like which is already pretty long. But you know, I don't know. It just right. But you live all that. You live all the time, and you meet you know hundreds, thousands, and thousands of people in this empire, and then you run into one. I don't know. It didn't seem entirely unlikely to me, and it didn't seem like her. her I mean, her plan doesn't hinge on him. It just turns out that he is a, an effective tool to further the plan i, I wasn't so sure why he it. needed to be out of time either that that seemed odd to me yeah that's There's, true it's entertaining at times but it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of point to it well he's disconnected so much like breck right yeah disconnected but they are part of this society they're integral parts of the society but they're disconnected right i feel like it would have been interesting if he was one out of time or if he was one of our officers but combining those two just seemed like keeping too much stuff on this one character well there aren't that many characters yeah, but Scott's Scott's right. It, it's he he is messed up. His identity is lost because he's lost all of the cultural significance. He's lost Absolutely. his house, you yeah. know. So that's how he's out of time. And 
And uh, oh, I know. get that completely. I guess my point was that seemed like enough. It's convenient. Didn't also need to be one of her officers. No, huh. well, but maybe that's just yeah. me. All right. Boy, there there is a lot in this book. I mean, I, I guess yeah, I, I think I think that's true. I think that is actually one of my problems. Is I I thought that the the gender thing was really clever, and yet. It, it, it so many layers like like monty said you know do you need a seven layer burrito i'm not sure that's a lot of layers yes. that's take one layer of I, out I of the burrito layered on all right i love the layers fair enough but it did give me that ian banks vibe um mm. I, I i liked that i also i get the feeling and correct me if i'm wrong but you know what we're seeing is is these aren't these are these cultures are alien, but they're the people in them are humans, right? They're humans. Yes, in they're the spe- future, said to be humans, and, and then they formed all these different empires and cultures on these different planets. And these guys happen to be this very militaristic, awful empire that is taking over all the other planets. And then they meet the actual aliens who decide that they are gonna not put well, up with them anymore. Yeah, well, it's implied that there are... I thought it was implied that there were other aliens that they had encountered before the, the uh, Predsger, yeah, right? right? Or the or the one, the super powerful yeah, ones just, that they meet. They just have met their match, or they're more than their match, actually. Yeah. Right, right. Because they talk about the fact that the actual Radj is a Dyson sphere somewhere, and nothing non-human was allowed to enter it, right. and all that stuff, so... And the actual Radj doesn't know about the Empire around it, which was a oh, yeah, throwaway line I thought was really funny. Right, the Empire is actually an ancillary... Because the actual Raj sphere is completely insular, and you just can't even go. It mustn't be looked at. Right. Yeah, <laughs> kept pure. Yeah, the Empire created the whole Empire just to protect, just as buffers around this thing nobody can get into or out of. And that's why I like this book so much because there's so many. Like that's like a two line thing, and that's like you could write a whole book just about that. Well, I want to read that book. That reminded me of Foundation, actually, a little oh, bit. Oh, no. We brought it full uh, well, circle. Sorry, but it, 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 we mentioned that before we started recording. But it's, it, it, it reminded me of that a little bit, where it's this, you know, out on the far reaches, there's this little enclave that's been set up. And everything that's happening around it is just part of, you know, the, the side effects of their little game that they're playing inside their little sphere. Uh, I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there's so much here. I enjoyed this book a lot. I didn't consider it the best book I read last year or anything like that because I think, again, I, I although I have read some Ian Banks now and I like it and I can recognize the style, it's not my very favorite kind of book. But there is so much here, and any book that makes me think of Ian Banks, that makes me think of Ursula Le Guin, that's got all these different uh, games that it's playing. I mean. Uh, what I took out of it, Scott, you know, I, I, saying that I didn't think it was my favorite book of last year. What I got out of it was like, oh my god, this is her first novel. This is her because it's a it, for a first time novelist. It kind of blew me away that that it it is she's not taking it easy. This is the no. high degree of difficulty, and she does a good job. She really does. She does. If she doesn't win the Hugo, which I think is it may not happen, she should certainly win. What is it, the Campbell for best new novelist? Right. Um, because I think this is this is just a stunning debut. Even if you don't think it's the best book you've read this year, for a first-time novelist to write something like this is uh, pretty great. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's definitely worth reading. I, I thought both of these books were were totally worth reading. All right, let's take a break for our sponsor. I want to talk to you about New Relic. New Relic is a software analytics company that helps make sense of billions of metrics across millions of applications, all in real time. Now, as you may have heard, it's 2014 now. I hope you're not writing 2013 on your checks or that you still have checks. And uh, one thing people are really focused on this year is seamless 
application performance across multiple platforms on all of their devices. That sounds simple, right? It doesn't sound simple at all to me. Making an app work consistently well on lots of different devices, all with different operating systems running different types of software is super complex. How complex? Back in the ancient days, uh, like before time was invented, like 2007, it was basically impossible for an app developer to know how his or her app was performing once it shipped. That was it. In those days, we'd spend a lot of time doing bug hunts, and then you just cross your fingers and hope for the best and sit around monitoring Twitter and app stores and hope that the apps do okay. But those days are over. New Relic lets you track application performance down to the end user level and all in real time. This means that you can spot problems, find bugs, and fix your code fast, way before the users even notice that anything is wrong. Do yourself a favor and check out New Relic. Go to newrelic.com to learn more and sign up for a free account, no credit card required, no commitment, and let New Relic help you make more reliable web and mobile apps. And thanks to New Relic for sponsoring The Incomparable. I would like to briefly complain about the ending. Okay, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, you were talking about uh, about the Princess Bride ending earlier. And this, this too, has an ending that's sort of like, say, every, say <laughs> characters who remain alive, let's team up and explore the universe together. <laughs> like, I don't like having a plot that hinges on a character. Like, I like a plot where a character is bent on vengeance and is... Straight, striding straight forward with steely determination through all sorts of obstacles. Great. And then when our protagonist gets to where our protagonist was going, eh, gives up. What the hell? Let's go do something else. Like, I felt the, like the end of the book, I had stepped off a cliff. Just put a pin in it. Where they say, uh, actually, we're going to put you in charge of a ship. Come back later for the sequel. Never mind about the whole reason you were reading the book. Well, I mean, they, it's tried to, they try to explain it away. Well, you did take out some of the emperors and... That's true. She didn't a... shoot an emperor, like one out of 2,000 bodies or whatever. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> and and now you're on a Golf new... Clap. You know, but there's a new mission <laughs> to do this other thing that could also be interesting. And, and you know, you don't really have much choice in the matter. Uh, it's there and it's engineered. And that, that was the part that made me laugh is that I, I get why why she does that at the end. But at the same time, it's sort of like... Congratulations, you are now the captain of the Starship <laughs> Enterprise, and your annoying sidekick, he can be your first officer. Go have adventures, kids. And like, this yeah. doesn't really fit with how I expected everybody to sort of end up, you know, shot to death at the end. Yeah. Wouldn't be a good way to start a series. That would be what Ian Banks would do, though, Scott. It is what Ian Banks would do, but his series generally don't have the same characters. I like resolution. And this book... Felt, seemed like it just refused to give it to no, me. No, at the end, it seemed like it was the pilot of a of a, of a series, right? Yeah. It's like, and that's how they became the captain and first officer of a starship. There's going to be more of these what? called, you know, Ancillary Revenge and Ancillary Love. Actually, I believe the next one is called Ancillary Mercy. Uh, I'm Mercy? Not, I'm not that's making boring. that up. That's what it's, that's, that I believe, if you look at the Wikipedia page. Ancillary Sword, and, Ancillary and, Mercy, and I believe then Ancillary Love will be the next one, Monty. Yes. Well, so <laughs> what was weird for me when reading this was I, I was finishing it up and um, I was reading on my Kindle, so you get that little progress bar at the bottom, and I thought I had a whole chapter left. And it turned out that's just all the crap that they put at the end. Like, yeah. here's an interview with the author and other stuff. And I was, so I got to that chapter where they're like, all right, going off to the ship. I'm like, all right, so I got one more chapter. No. Well, that was the end of the book. <laughs> That's the that, You're done. Then all, it's all that crap for book clubs at the end. Who does book clubs? I skipped all of that. Yeah, <laughs> bunch of jerks. That's who. That's I don't need that. 
Um, no, I mean, I, I don't want it to sound like I was too down on this book. I did enjoy it. It wasn't. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with Jason. I, I, I It was not my favorite book I read last year, but that I think is more a function of just the, t- the types, types of books that I really like. And this is a book that I liked, but I didn't love I, I may check out the sequels we'll see uh, you know what the buzz is on those when they come out but i, I there's a lot I, monty i think has totally hit the the nail on the head there there's so many ideas i was interested in them but i feel like it would have benefited a little more from just a little more focus yeah i certainly liked the book i just didn't fall head over heels in love with it yeah yeah i liked it a lot i will i will read the the sequel i i i was impressed um and I, I did love the love the richness of it, but I did feel like it was a little too much stuff in the in the in the pot, or too many layers in the burrito. If we go back to the Taco Bell metaphor, which I'm not married to, too I many burritos in the pot. What a burrito in every pot. I say put more burritos in the pot. More layers in the burritos in the pot. That's because okay. you're a communist, Scott. We didn't even talk about the fact that this is the. Um, this AI is famous for singing songs, and there's that oh, okay. that whole thing, which is this weird like. Is it a person? Is it not? It's got it's got these strange quirks. Um, yeah, they never really explained whether the AI is an AI or has an independent can act independently or not, really. But I felt like that was on purpose, so I didn't. Well, and I did like the fact that it really came down to the fact that every they talk about the fact that all the ships have their favorites, you know, and also that mm-hmm. the people like at the end of the day those ancillaries, there's still something person-like about them that it came down to the fact that that killing, we haven't really talked about that story thread that much, but the, the whole sort of flashback story thread where we see the Emperor uh, order eventually the death of this lieutenant who is, you know, beloved to a right. certain extent the by Justice The lieutenant who prevented, who prevented a massacre. Right, and that's essentially what sets this whole thing in motion, <laughs> yes. right? Because she can't, she can't stand that. Justice of Torin can't stand that. Shoots the emperor, and then the emperor destroys the ship. <laughs> and to me, that was the cool part for me because, again, I felt the most empathy with that character at that point, who you know felt that they had to do what they were ordered because they are an AI, but also you know had this whole free will action of like, all right, and now I'm going to kill you because you made me do something really bad. <laughs> And I'm going to send, and that's a really exciting scene where sends the this one ancillary into the escape pod basically to go off, and yeah. and you're like, oh no, that's how that's how this happened. Yeah, that's how. Oh <laughs> no. Yeah, it took me a minute to put those those <laughs> those pieces together, but when you realize that, I think that is a great is a great moment of yeah. oh, so that's how we get Breck. <laughs> I think it would be funny if in a later book we discover that the emperor's two halves are split exactly along male and female lines ah. but nobody can tell right <laughs> how will we how will we know are you the good one or the bad one there's no way to tell make sure to have your emperor spade and neutered something that i that dan mentioned that i wanted to bring up again is that one thing that, I, that did bother me like i said earlier i like the fact that we don't just see this kind of cool setup we do get the background where we re, where we have to witness the horrors of this empire uh, at close range, the, how these corpse soldiers' bodies come to be available and what they do when they take over these planets. Um, one thing that I felt that this book did shy away from and I thought was unfortunate, and maybe she'll deal with it in a later installment, but I never I never felt that this book dealt with who the who the person who the body was before it was yeah. uh, mm-hmm. taken over by the Justice of yeah. Torin. And I, I'm sorry, I don't believe that 
a, a, a person and, and, and their body and their brain is going to be completely vacant with whatever science fictional process puts an AI in it. And if they have favorites and if these bodies all have sort of things that are quirky about them, you know, that's really because it was a human being before. And that human being is probably still there in some way. And to not deal with that at all, which I felt like this book really didn't, I think it's too bad because we are ultimately this is go, person is going back to being a person. And I was a little disappointed. I don't necessarily need like a flashback where she suddenly has memories that she didn't know were there that's of her childhood and all of that. I, I, you know, that... That, that, that would be kind of hokey, but I, I just, that, I felt it kind of abdicated responsibility for that. That our, our, our hero who we're following here was somebody who died, and we don't know who they were, and we don't get any real sense other than that, well, you know, this is the body that happens to have well, survived. there's a passing reference. The doctor offers to uh, put the old personality back in charge, and Breck just says, oh, so you want a personality you approve of instead of me? Yeah. And everyone just shrugs and gets on with their lives. But, yeah. That's not good enough. All right. Uh, before we go, I want to do a really quick round of uh, what are we reading? Books that we've read lately that we would like to talk about and recommend or condemn, as the case may be, if you want to be a very negative person. Uh, Scott, what about you? What What are you reading? What am I reading? Currently, I am reading, uh, what is it called? The Genie and the Golem. Uh, I am not. I'm about a third of the way through. And it's very good. It's about a genie and a golem, as you might expect. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, Whoa. I know. Spoiler. How predictable. In, uh, I think, early 1900s New York City. So, <laughs> really, really. I've, I've heard many good things about that book. Or no, it's called The Golem and the Genie. I think I've switched. Oh, no. no you that book, everything. I've heard nothing about that book. <laughs> but it's really good. Uh, so far, I haven't finished it. It could, you know, get really crappy. Um I also read a nonfiction book called Empty Mansions, which uh, is getting a lot of press, and it was fantastic. So if you want some nonfiction, check that out. All right. Dan, what about you? What are you reading? Well, I just read this book you might have heard of called Ancillary Justice. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Tell us all about it. Oh. <laughs> uh, I did just finish that today, so I haven't picked up a new book yet. Um, the most recent book I read before that was the third book in the Peter Grant series, the Rivers of London series. Ah. Uh, Whispers Underground, um, which I which I liked. I've I've enjoyed that series. Ben Aronovich. I I just bought the second one of those. Yeah, I, I've liked them a bit. I um and uh, I think they improve as they go along. I'm looking huh. forward. I think the fourth one comes out in a month or so. Uh, and I'm about to pick up. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, one of the books I got for Christmas, which is a nonfiction book about T. E. Lawrence, uh, that I really am interested in reading. Uh, so that's the next thing on my on my to-do list. All right. Monty, what about you? What are you reading? Uh, well, I just finished reading a book called Ultimate Porno, The Making of a Sex Colossal. <laughs> <laughs> I go on. Nonfiction. Very highbrow. It's, it's nonfiction. It's by the assistant director of Caligula. And it's about uh-huh. how that movie got made. And it is huh. fascinating. <laughs> wow. It will not surprise you to learn that the making of that movie was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Not like surprised. on every level. <laughs> and I've also just started reading the Film Noir Reader, which is a collection of essays on film noir. All right. Cool. Like the essay that defined film noir in 1955, ah. I think. I, I really hope the title of this episode is Ultimate Porno, The Making of a Sex Colossal. It's probably not, but we can dream. <laughs> you think you know what 
Caligula involved, you do not. <laughs> Just the casting process for uh, all of the people in the background. Uh, <laughs> you, you think you can only imagine, you can't even imagine. Uh, Jason, what, what are you reading? Oh, well, thanks days? for asking, Scott. Uh, I've been reading, right now I'm reading Crux by Ramez Nam, which is the sequel to Nexus, which I read last year. Uh, good... So far, Nexus is a really good uh, book about uh, in the near future and people uh, put uh, this drug in their body called Nexus that basically networks their brain and puts an operating system in their brain. They can connect to other people and it's sort of the beginning of possibly creating a hive mind, but governments are afraid of it and are trying to destroy it. And there may be an artificial intelligence or at least an augmented formerly human intelligence that's now taking over computers and uh, Ramez Nam is a, he used to work at Microsoft. He writes some nonfiction and he also writes fiction now. And, uh, he is, a uh, a smart guy and there's some really interesting, uh, tech extrapolation stuff in it. So I'm really enjoying Crux. Um, I finished over the holiday break. I read Love Minus 80 by Will McIntosh, which is, um, based on his Hugo nominated short story called Bride Sickles, which is about, um, in the future, they, they cure death, but um, most people who are horribly um, – who are, die in a horrible accident, it, it, they can cure death, but they have to also fix all the things that are wrong with them. And somebody apparently has a brilliant idea that particularly attractive dead people could be brought back to life by rich men to marry them. Uh, which is super as creepy. It's creepier than it sounds. In fact, it is that creepy. And this book, this book is uh, expands on that. And there's a there's a a guy hits guy boy meets girl. Boy hits girl with his car. Girl dies. Boy feels really guilty. Boy goes and visits her corpse in the corpse sickle pod, but doesn't have enough money to actually bring her back to life. And uh, it goes from there. Uh, a friend of the of the podcast, Tom Negrino, recommended it to me as his favorite book of 2013. Uh, it was, I would say, it was fine. I didn't, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I would say it's like the love actually of sci-fi novels. <laughs> it's more of a sci-fi romantic comedy um, where, like I said, girl is hit by car, and yet all the characters are defined by their romantic relationships or lack of same. It's all about love triangles and who's dating who, even though it's set in this weird uh, near future world where they've, you know, there's a a vast difference between the rich and the poor. And some people have sort of fled into the countryside and all of that. And yet in the middle of it, it's just a big, warm, romantic comedy. Strange. Uh, Not bad, just very strange. And I, 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 I was reading it expecting something else. And I was like, okay, this is love actually. Got it. Got it. Uh, it's right there in the title, Love Minus 80. Um, and then the other novel I read over the break was Shadow Ops Control Point by Mike Cole, which Dan recommended to me. And, I, you know, I like to be a positive person on this podcast. So what I'll say is I thought it was kind of a disaster. And um, I Same don't kind of and I don't I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> and I feel kind of bad <laughs> wow. to say this because I know Dan liked it and that Mike Cole seems to be a very nice guy on the Internet. But um it, it is a gigantic mess with lots of characters who are incredibly stupid doing things that make no sense in order to have a plot that isn't that great. So don't don't read it. Sorry, Dan. Ow. I, I won't say anything because he is a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I read, read that it. book. I read these. I read the sequel as well. I believe Scott Scott read it as well. I think. I, I think we both felt well. more positive about it than you did. I guess. That's true. <laughs> so I'd like to thank my guests for reading the books and coming here to talk about them. 
The only only three could do it. Only three were up to the challenge. They are the superheroes of the Incomparable Book Club, and they are Scott McNulty. Thank you for being here. Jason, you're my favorite ancillary. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, did you did you murder me before making me an ancillary? That's the question. Uh, well, we, let's let dwell on the details. <laughs> That's right. Fair enough. And let's just enjoy the relationship. All right. She's my favorite. Um, <laughs> male, female, I don't know. She's my favorite. Mm-hmm. Whatever. You people with your humans yeah. and your genders. Gender doesn't matter. Blah, blah, blah. Monty Ashley, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. I enjoy reading books. Ah, books are nice, aren't they? And complaining about them. Yes, that's also (laughs) nice. And Dan Morin. I could say you were my favorite Anthony, but I might be lying. You might might be. False facing, if you will. Reference to both books. Nice. Thank you, Monty. The lies of Dan Morin, everybody. (laughs) And thanks, everybody out there, for listening to The Incomparable and reading books. The people who write books, thank you for reading books. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) 